Well, if you guys are here, which you are, congratulations for that. Um, you're probably avoiding the deathly plague that is going around in our community. So hopefully you are able to stay not sick. Uh, that would be good for you and good for, for all of us. Kate and I were punched by the bug this past week. I won't give you the details. You're welcome. Um, I do also want to note that uh, maybe on a more serious note for some of you, uh, thank you for being here. We try to say this each week, although sometimes we forget it. I know that uh, in a church community, a lot of times it's difficult for folks to maybe come back into this place or maybe come to this place for the very first time. It's a difficult move to um, trust a different community. And sometimes that is just you getting out of your car and walking into this building. So if you happen to be new with us or if you're still kind of on the fence and checking things out, we really appreciate your trust in us as a people. And we hope to make good um, on our end of the bargain by welcoming you and loving you and accepting you well this evening. Let's begin with a word of prayer and then we will dive into our text in the book of Exodus. God, we are thankful for the opportunity that we have to explore who you are through your word. God, we're thankful for your son, for the gift of salvation that is available through his death and his resurrection. God, in the midst of all of the struggles and the difficulties that we potentially are going through, whether that's health issues or relationship issues or job issues or just life issues. We ask that you would be present, that you would demonstrate your power, your goodness, your grace, your mercy. God, the things that we talk about, may they not just be theories, but they, might they be real um, expressions of, of who you are. God, we're thankful for this evening. We are thankful um, that we are here in this place and we are expectant that you will do a work in our lives. God, we pray this each and every week, but may it be true again that you are conforming us and shaping us and molding us into the image of your son. God, may that show fruit not just in our daily devotions or in our prayers, but in the life that we live, the decisions that we make, the way that we advocate for people, the way that we stand up for justice, the way that we promote equality, the, the ways that we see people on the margins and the outskirts and we invite them in. May we love well because we have been loved well by you. God, we're thankful for this story of the Exodus and you taking a people out of slavery and servitude and bringing them into the promised land. And we're thankful that that story is fulfilled most beautifully in your son and for the way that he has led us into the promised land and given us life and freedom and hope. God, we ask that we would not forget that but that we would live in light of it and its power, that we would be shaped by it. God, give us guidance this evening as we tackle some difficult uh, topics. May we have your grace, may we have illumination from your spirit, and may we be open and available as you lead us into new insights. God, we're thankful for who you are, and we just ask that you would be present and meet us here in this place. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So our text this evening is a long one, so I would encourage you to sit up straight, nice and tall. Let the wooden backs of these pews do some work for you as we read through this passage. It is an interesting one. Uh, this evening, I'm pretty much going to give you five points. I feel like a real pastor this evening, guys. I've got five 
points that we are gonna talk about this evening. I've got no poem or no song for you, but we do have five points and they're kind of more talking points. Um, So some of them, as the words will come up on the screen, I'll be afraid, you'll be afraid, we'll be collectively afraid together, but I think that the Lord will lead us as we begin to tackle some difficult issues that I believe are coming out of this particular passage of scripture. So this is Exodus chapter five, beginning in verse one. It says, afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. And Exodus 6 verse 1 says, then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. The word of God for the people of God. So this is sort of a long passage, and what is is being set up here is something of the beginning of a showdown. This is kind of this climactic moment, or leading to the climactic moment in the book of Exodus, where we're going to see this power struggle between Pharaoh and 
Moses and the Israelites, and even more so, God himself. The passage begins, afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, now this is after Moses has met God at the burning bush. For the church people in the room, this is like this classic Sunday school text where Moses is led out into the wilderness. He's, he's caring for these sheep and he sees a strange sight and he turns aside and says, hmm, let me go see what this strange sight is. And he wanders over and God meets him in flames of fire in a bush to give Moses a charge to go back to Egypt where he's from to talk to the ruler in charge and to say to him, let the people of God go. Now this huge task is met immediately by Moses saying, no, in no uncertain terms. He has five main objections and God answers those objections. And we see that God's major teaching point to Moses is, I understand all the things that you're saying. I understand all the inadequacies that you have. And I'm not even going to fight you on those, but all you need to know, Moses, is I will be with you. This is after Moses has been empowered by God, even though Moses keeps fighting and keeps fighting. At the end of that story, Moses says, please just pick somebody else. And God finally allows him to do this work with Aaron, who we see in this passage as they go before Pharaoh. This is also after Moses and Aaron had gone to the elders of Israel, this people that is in slavery and servitude, this people that the Pharaoh is depending upon their labor for the advancement of his kingdom and his empire. There's two pharaohs in, in the book of Exodus. The first one has passed away, and the first one was kind of freaked out um, that these people were becoming numerous, that these Israelites kept increasing. But this second pharaoh here, he's excited because that means more forced labor. That means more slaves, more stuff, more empire expansion. And he understands this is going on and Moses and Aaron are going to confront him. And Moses and Aaron have also been given these signs to do and they do them in front of the elders of Israel. And Israel feels as though they are empowered and God will show up and God will deliver them finally, climactically, definitively from Egyptian slavery and servitude. So Moses, in a sense, you've got to think, even though he's got all these objections and all these things that are keeping him from owning this call, you've got to think that he's kind of riding high a bit here. You've got to think that he's ready because God is showing up and the people are buying into it and it says that everybody is believing that God's going to be there and be present. They've got these cool little tricks where Moses throws down his staff and it turns into a snake and then he picks it up and it turns back into a staff or he puts his hand in his cloak and he pulls it out and it's got leprosy, which is not leprosy as we know it, but basically just some weird funky skin disease, which is kind of weird. And then he puts it back in and he's fine. Or he can make the, the Nile into blood. These really cool tricks that Moses has. He's feeling pretty good. And he shows up and afterward, it, it says that he appears before Pharaoh and says this. This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Remember, this name Yahweh is one that's been given to Moses in chapter three. This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Not just let my people go. That's kind of a weak translation. Even though we know that and we picture Charlton Heston standing up, let my people go. I just, I think that he does that. I still haven't seen the movie Ten Commandments, but I'm pretty sure that that happens somewhere. I'm old, but I'm not that old. Okay. Prince of Egypt, maybe? Anyway, um, so it really reads better, send my people. This is a command. So Moses is showing up. He's like, what you got, Pharaoh? This is what Yahweh says. Send the people. Why? 
so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. You've got to think that Moses is like flying high. He's like, guys, got this staff turns into a snake. Let these people go, Pharaoh. You know, I mean, this is, this is weird. We don't know how Moses got in. We don't know how Moses had this audience with the most powerful person in perhaps the world, or at least this, this region at the time. We don't know much about this, but Moses shows up and begins to say this. Now, for the biblically literate people, and this is not just biblically literate, this is like biblical nerds. You hear this line, and you might think, well, that's strange. Because Moses has been charged with a certain command that when he gets before Pharaoh, this is what he is supposed to do. If we back up the truck a bit and go to Exodus chapter three, it says, Moses, you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt. Now, where are the elders? They're not in the story. And this is where I love my Jewish interpreters because they start making up all these stories to try to explain why the elders are not there. And the best they could come up with was... They got scared, so they didn't go. But here we've got Moses and Aaron, and they're there. The elders aren't there. And even farther, it says, when you get there, Moses and the elders, this is what you say. Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices. Review. That's what they're supposed to say. And this is what Moses actually says. Send my people so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. It's different, right? Can we agree on that? It's different. Now, some people have said that perhaps this is why Pharaoh comes back with this. Who is Yahweh? Basically, uh, Moses, I don't care what it is that you have to say. So some people are saying that the fact that Moses goes against or doesn't uh, specifically live out all of the different facets of what Yahweh has commanded him to do, they say that maybe this is why he, he meets such a, a hard no that doesn't really go too far, though, because back up a little bit farther and remember that the whole point of the story is that Pharaoh's heart will be hardened. There's all sorts of theological controversies that are going on there, but we still have Moses not really doing exactly what he's supposed to do, and we kind of have to deal with that, okay? But just hold on for a second, because here Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? This is a rhetorical question, people. He knows who Yahweh is. He at least knows that this is the God served by the slaves that he is forcing labor upon so that they can build up this city or cities or whatever it is that they're working to do. All the bricks that they're making to build all these buildings that Pharaoh wants to sit back and enjoy, perhaps a summer palace, who knows? He knows who Yahweh is, but it goes on. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not acknowledge. The NIV says, I do not know Yahweh, but the real force of it here is I do not acknowledge Yahweh and I will not let Israel go. This is a political clash here because Pharaoh is posturing himself as the real king, the real God, the real ruler. Moses and Aaron come back and say, the God of the Hebrews, okay, now we're dealing. Because for Pharaoh, it's not just Yahweh, this God that you should be scared of. Now, what Moses is doing, is he's tapping into um, a different social structure, the God of the Hebrews. Remember, the Hebrews were this outgroup, this marginalized people, the people on the, on the outskirts, the people that were not protected necessarily, the people that had no rights, for lack of a better term. These were the people that were on the brink, the God of the Hebrews, the God that actually likes those people. 
and does work for them and on their behalf. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, and this is where Moses gets back to the script, now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to Yahweh our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. If you care about this, this three-day journey is not them saying, let us go a day or so away, make camp, offer some sacrifices, and then come back in a day or so. This is, let us go for three full days and then have a party in the wilderness, and then we'll just keep on partying. This is not like Moses kind of saying, oh gosh, I need to couch my terms here and make sure that he knows that we'll be back at some point because this isn't what Moses is doing. He's saying, no, we need to go on a trip and we need to serve, we need to worship our God. Implication, we're done worshiping and serving you, my man, Pharaoh. Okay, so Pharaoh comes back and says, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. This is a fancy term, theopolitical text. That'll get you big street credit, the parties that you go to. I just know it. Telling you, if you're like at the punch bowl, (laughs) talking about stuff. What do you think about Exodus 5? It's theopolitical, it's a text, right? But this, what it's, what's showing us here is Yahweh versus Pharaoh as the throwdown, the showdown between these two entities. And Pharaoh, at the very beginning, is not having it because he has plans and he has things that he wants to do. And now this text here from Brueggemann, I've also got like these five points, but most of them are structured by some of the thoughts by Walter Brueggemann. He says, given the identification of Yahweh with the slaves... The Hebrews, the outgroup, the marginalized, the people on the lower um, section of the status or class here. Given Yahweh's identification with these people, it follows, hold on, that biblical faith is inevitably concerned with political questions, with an inescapable tilt, not only toward justice, but also toward liberation. My five points this evening are framed within this structure of the church. And, and my first point is the church and politics. I'm looking around the room right now and it's great because your eyes are like, they're getting huge and they're saying, don't say what I think you're gonna say, Josh. Do not go there because we can't handle it. We're kind of on the edge and we've got this big red aisle between us and I don't know if we've got all the Republicans here and our Democrats here or what have you. Okay, Libertarians, you're in the, with Doug up in the balcony. Shout out to the Libertarians. No, um, When we even talk about these terms, we start thinking, oh gosh, this is not what we do in church. And to some degree, absolutely. I'm not gonna be the guy who's up here canvassing for certain political candidates. However, I believe that some of our fears and some of our anxieties around these very real issues have maimed us, have left us powerless, have left us only concerned, and I say only very carefully, but I'm saying only concerned with the spiritual well-being of people. To which I want to say and to which I want to challenge us, regardless of your political affiliation and regardless of how uncomfortable you are with me even talking about this right now in this slide behind me, if our care for people's spiritual Nature and their spiritual character is not also met with our concern for their very real and tangible needs. What are we doing? It's not good enough. 
And here's what I've learned over the last couple of months as many of you have navigated difficult conversations surrounding the church and politics. This is what I have come to understand and this is what I want to encourage us with this evening. We have so much common ground. Because Jesus, I believe, has changed us and transformed us and helped us to see the people who need help. And it's not as if you pull the lever one way that you don't care about people. And if you pull the lever the other way, you do care about people. That's not what we're learning here. What we're learning is we care about people, period. And what I want to challenge us with this evening as we see this text, and yeah, this is an Old Testament text. And this is one that doesn't exactly have... um, straight application to us because it's not as if we can just walk into Pharaoh's room and have a a meeting with Pharaoh. But what I want us to see is this common ground where we care about people on the ground with needs, that that is something that the church, our church, needs to partner with. So when we go down the street and we do ministry with the kids of Camden Avenue and we feed them in the summertime, we play games with them, we try to interact with them, we try to cultivate relationships with them so that we can maybe even start an after-school program and be a consistent presence in their life. Or when some of us go to Epoch once a week and we mentor these kids that don't have the homes that we had as kids growing up or don't have the homes that we are providing for our kids now, that is something that we should all be partnering with. And when we see people in poverty and brokenness, when we see their health needs not being met, and when we see their bills not being paid for problems that are not just laziness or their own bad choices, when we see those things, it behooves us as the church to step in and do something about it. What we see here in this passage is these hints that we should not be afraid about political sorts of uh, topics. And if the church is not able to speak about things where people's lives are on the line and where people matter, what are we doing? I don't know what that looks like for us as a community because I know in America this has become a very partisan sort of issue where you've got one side of the aisle that wants to do good this way and you've got another side of the aisle that wants to do good this way. But what I want to at least challenge us with is to have conversations across the aisle and to do good together here and now in this town. Good that we can see and good that can be of benefit to the people in our lives and in our communities. Do not allow this slide Do not allow the church and politics to be so scary to you that we do nothing together because that is not good enough and that is not what Jesus is asking us to do. I'm convinced that it starts with conversations with you where you have issues and you talk them out and you come up with strategies to do things, real things, tangible things in this town for the good so that Jesus's name can be proclaimed in this community, maybe in a way that it hasn't been. So the church and politics, that's point number two. Take a deep breath. That's over with. We can move on now, okay? Pharaoh's new policy in this text says, that same day Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. Um, We'll we'll come back to this idea in in a few, but basically we have Pharaoh who's at the top and he's got slave drivers who are kind of managing the the oversight of all of this slave labor. And then we have overseers who are actually Hebrews. They're people in Israel who have charge over other folks in Israel. 
Okay, so we've got this multiple tiered system here. But what his message is, you're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. And this is where it gets really interesting here. We see Pharaoh who's saying, we're not gonna give him any help. We're not gonna reduce the quota. They've gotta work harder. They're lazy. They need to show up and they need to do better. And this is why he says this. Make the work harder, he says, for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. That is profound. What he says here is we're trying to force them to do more and more and more so that they do not have time to listen to Moses and Aaron's message of hope. We want them to work. And it's interesting too, I put this Hebrew up here because I know you guys are emerging Hebrew scholars at this point. I just wanted to call this out to you. Remember, God is the one who is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Okay? We also see that Pharaoh at times is hardening his own heart, but this is the theme of this story, is that Pharaoh's heart will be hard, and it's not without a strong hand of God that the people are going to be uh, able to leave Egyptian slavery and servitude. But here it says, make the work harder. That verb, uh, tikbad, it's the same verb that is used for the hardening of Pharaoh's own heart. He's, in a sense, acting out the very thing that is happening to him internally. The hardness of his heart is manifesting in him hardening the work of these people. Same thing with the term there for the work. Um, it's an avad word. It's a serving type word. And this is what God keeps asking the people to go is to go out and to avad Yahweh, to serve Yahweh, to worship Yahweh. But what Pharaoh is doing is he is making their work, their physical manual labor to him harder. So Pharaoh's new policy here is demonstrating his own callousness and the, the way that his heart is taking this message of potentially hope and freedom for these people. And he does not want anyone to allow themselves to hear this. Now listen again to Brueggemann because I think this is important. This is a two-slider, so just stick with me. He says, Pharaoh's notion is that the pressure of productivity is the way to keep social relations from changing. That is, the lazy and unproductive have time to listen to voices that authorize dangerous change. Productivity numbs attention to the voice of new possibility. Productivity numbs attention to the voice of new possibility. This mode of enslavement is worth considering in a society that is aimed at the acquisition of goods in the pursuit of greed and affluence. Productivity numbs our attention, which makes me want to think about this, the church and consumerism. Because here we are in an American culture where it's not this, uh, for most of us, it's not this affliction or um, slavery type status where we're working and we're working and we're working. However, we live in a system that demands our work and our work and our work and our work and who pays for that our families and our relationships and our commitments to God and our spiritual like we, we live in a, in a situation where we are uh, consumers at the very heart of things and I want us to at least see this that when we live in this state of 
work, 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 to get, get, get. And sometimes those things are noble, but still we, we are so committed to the job that we don't often have the time to devote ourselves to following Jesus. Productivity is numbing our attention to new social change, to new ways where God is moving. It's numbing our attention to a lot of things. And the church and consumerism, we see this play out just on a really small scale. We see this play out within the American church where we have a lack of commitment to the local church. I'm gonna go here and it's gonna get uncomfortable, but we have a lack of commitment to the local church because, well, I like the music here. I like the preaching here and I like my old friends here and this is where I grew up and I don't really want to commit to anything because I'm scared of all kinds of commitments. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to consume. We have this mentality where we see this sort of um, consumerism taking over and we just want to pick and we want to choose and we don't want to invest and to put down roots and when the stuff hits the fan and when things get hard and when those Facebook conversations go crazy and when you don't want to have the sit down, what do you do? You leave because that is easy. And what I'm asking you to do is to not be numbed by the productivity of consuming things for your own good. We also can look, and this is point 2B, the church and busyness. And as soon as I see this uh, phrase or see this line, I immediately go to an article that I read by Eugene Peterson. He's like an 85-year-old pastor that's been doing it for a long time. He was the translator behind the message um, really sharp guy. He translated the message as his like devotional activity. That means he like just went through the Greek and Hebrew for a few minutes a day and, whoa, there's a new translation of the Bible and whatever. Okay. So he wrote this article and he said, it's called the unbusy pastor. And this really convicts me because um, how most people see this, and I get this text all the time. I'm sorry to bother you. I know you're busy. I'm sorry to invade on your time because I know, I know that you have a lot going on. And what Eugene Peterson says is, the way that people frame this is, the poor pastor, we say, so devoted to his flock, the work is endless and he sacrifices himself so unstintingly, but the word busy is the symptom, not of commitment, but of betrayal. It is not devotion, but defection. He continues, the adjective busy set as a modifier to pastor should sound to our ears like adulterous to characterize a wife or embezzling to describe a banker. It is an outrageous scandal, a blasphemous affront. Why? Because at the core, he says, when I'm busy, I'm being lazy and I'm being prideful. Oh, I love it when you guys text me and say, I'm so busy because it makes me feel important. It makes me feel like I got stuff to do that matters. But really, it's just a, a, a demonstration of my own laziness and lack of priorities to schedule my time in a way that reflects what it is that I'm called to do. The question then becomes, how are you different? How busy are we? And when it comes down to this question, how numb have we become because we are consuming everything in sight and because we are so busy to try to get to the next plateau? 
and what Pharaoh's mentality was here, if we could just keep them busy, if we could just keep them working, they won't have time to listen to this hope-filled prophet Moses who's talking about life and freedom and getting out of slavery. We can just keep their hands dirty and keep them building bricks and don't reduce the quota. Take the stubble and the straw away and just make them do twice as much. That'll, that'll work. And that's kind of what our society has been doing to us is we've just been working and grinding because we think that's good and admirable, but what it's really costing us, I don't even think that we quite know. The church and consuming the church and being busy. Now, this one I think is my favorite one, the middlemen here in this text. Pharaoh's slave drivers, they begin to beat the Israelite overseers that had, they had, they had appointed demanding them, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers, they go and they appeal. Literally that term is they cried out. This is what God sees and God hears of his people. They're crying out to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Why are we getting beaten here? Why are the people above us beating us for this? This is all your fault. Your servants are giving us no straw, yet we're told to make bricks. Look how your servants are being beaten. You, Pharaoh, have violated or you have sinned against your people. Another translation would say, you have treated your people unjustly. This is interesting because Pharaoh's response, yeah, I got some more Hebrew up there. Keeps me, keeps me fresh, okay? Pharaoh's response is, go work. The NIV kind of flowers it up, makes it real nice and whatever, but like the very terse translation is go work. Now I said that that avad word, it's a serve work, so you could say go and serve. Pharaoh's first response as Moses and Aaron are before him or these uh, slave drivers are, are there and he says go and serve or go and work. Moses and Aaron, I'm not gonna listen to you. You guys that have your quibbles about not getting straw, tough beans, go and work. But what happens at the end of this story, after all the plagues and after all the stuff, this is Pharaoh's response to the people again. But he says it not in go work. He says it in brokenness where he says go serve Yahweh. It's the same construction. Go and work in this text where it's like, go and make those bricks. I don't care anymore. But later, after God has demonstrated himself to Pharaoh, where Pharaoh actually knows who God is in a way that he wasn't anticipating, he says, go, serve Yahweh. I can't take it anymore. He wins. I quit. So this is like a, a, a precursor of that. But what's fascinating about this passage here is the way that these middlemen, they go back to Moses and Aaron and after they leave this audience, it's as if they um, are expecting this conversation. They say, may the Lord to Moses and Aaron look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious. You have made us, it's actually like odorous. You have made us stink in the sight or in the nostrils, the olfactory system of Pharaoh and his officials, and you have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Now, again, this is the, this is the, the scheme here. We've got Pharaoh at the top and the Egyptian taskmasters and the middlemen. The middlemen are kind of um, underneath of these people, but they're also over the Israelites. They're over some of the Hebrews. Now, stick with me because this is so important for us in our particular moment. The middlemen have scorned their own to get some status and some reputation and some privilege over their own people who are making bricks and what have you. They've sold out to the system and now they're underneath of these people, but they're also over top of their own folks. And Brueggemann says this, 
Many of us are cast in our society precisely as those in the middle of such abusive arrangements. Few among us are powerful or as powerful or as brutal as Pharaoh. Many more of us are positioned where we notice and care, where we can protest injustice, but only at risk. You see, these middlemen, they, they saw things, but it was going to cost them something to go and point it out to Pharaoh and to the people ab above them. And they only did when it actually began to cost them something, when they were the ones that took the heat, when they took the stripes on their back, when they began to be the people who were getting beaten. It took them that. But we have the opportunity to be these middle people where we see the injustices and we see the atrocities and we see the way that people are being treated. And we have the opportunity to do something about it here and now. And I don't know what this always looks like, and I don't know how this will play itself out, but I do know that the temptation for us is to live in the comfortable middle. Where we don't want to put ourselves out there, where we don't want to risk anything because we have our lives and we have our stuff and we have our money, we want to be there, but we, we don't want to risk anything for the people on the margins and the outskirts, or the people in our neighborhood or the people in our work or the people that we know, our family members. Some, we just kind of, American individualism, it's about me and my family and we're going to consume and we're going to do this, but we don't want to advocate for these people. But what would it look like, church? What would it look like if we became a people who did advocate for folks? One example. What if, what if we became a community of people who provided space for foster kids? What if we became a community where we looked towards adoption? What if we became a community where we've got parents that have raised their kids and they're out of the house and they're in college and we've got a couple empty bedrooms? And what if we were the community that said, you know what, I've got room and I can, I can help meet a need. What if we were the types of people that it wasn't just about our family and our stuff and our money, but what if it was about helping people that really needed help? Now that's a big one. We went from zero to 60 pretty quick because I just asked you to open up your homes and adopt some kids. But there's so much in between there where we can not live in the comfortable middle where it's just about me and it's just about you. And I don't know what that looks like, but I do know that maybe where you're sitting, there might be a nudge on the small of your back to say, maybe I can do something here. Maybe I can meet a need and I can reach people for Christ. Moses returns and says why it's interesting that he doesn't respond to the people that said, you have made us stink to high heaven, Moses. He doesn't engage those people. He just goes straight to God and starts complaining. Why, Yahweh, have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. You have not done one thing that you said you were going to do, God. You showed up in the burning bush. We had this plan. I had the staff. It was turning into a snake. It was really cool. I went into that place. I got my butt handed to me on a platter. You were nowhere to be found. How impatient are we? When our prayers aren't answered the way that we think they should be in the timely manner that we think they should be. Now, this is, this is kind. This was the first word I came up with. And I very quickly wanted to cross it out because it's not just impatience. It's a lack of trust. When we begin to not even believe, it's not just about, I'll wait for you, God. It's like, are you even going to do this? Do you even care? And then I thought, well, for some of us, it's not even just a lack of... It's just complete unbelief. 
where God has been silent and God has been absent. And we say, you have not done the things that you said you were going to do. And now I'm just ticked. And now I don't even believe anymore. Forget it. I quit. And we've walked away. Which is why I say stuff at the beginning of the service. Like if you've come back into this place after that, thank you. If you've come back after like your life completely imploding or something happening to you that's disastrous to your faith, if you have gone through these steps of not just impatience but lack of trust to complete unbelief where this is like just a maybe even a joke to you, we're thankful that you're here, but I think that perhaps there might be a better way. I understand very well that life does not always work out the way that it's supposed to, and I understand that our prayers are not always answered in the ways that they're supposed to. My hope, though, is that it's not just how ticked we are here, which I think can be legitimate at times. My hope, though, is that the community, with its wide open arms and its loving embrace and its acceptance in the midst of that, can perhaps allow a passage of time and healing to occur when you feel that God is silent, but what you cannot turn away from is the rampant love of fellow believers who will not let you walk away. Perhaps this is where we function as the middle people when we see that sort of movement away from faith and we see that sort of jadedness and callousness and we see that sort of brokenness and suffering where we step in and say, don't leave yet. And it's not about like hitting them over the head with the Bible or evangelizing them, but it's just about opening up your home. So if we're not adopting kids, perhaps we're just having people over for dinner and demonstrating our love and our care and our commitment because we believe that Jesus has not left us. So we should not leave our brothers and sisters. Last point, this is the beginning of the real showdown here between Yahweh and Pharaoh. And this is what Yahweh says, now Moses, you will see what I will do. This whole thing is like this big setup where Pharaoh's heart is being hardened. And it says, because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. Moses, you're about to see some stuff here. And I want you to stick with me and I want you to power through and I want you to observe what is about to happen. And I didn't really have a great way to, br to bring this back together except to say that everything that we have talked about, the church and politics, the church and consumerism, the church and busyness, the church and all these other things, they cannot be accomplished in the way that I'm talking about them being accomplished without an understanding that Jesus is underlying all of them, without an understanding that this story continues beyond a people on the margins and the outskirts being taken from slavery and servitude and then being brought into freedom and life. This story is culminated in Jesus who puts sin and evil to death for us so that we could be brought into this story. We are in the text. We are on the margins and the outskirts and we are not written in from the very beginning in this story. But through Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, he has brought us in and we have forgotten that and the way that we live demonstrates that because we no longer seem to care about the people out here. Our arms are no longer open. Our embrace is no longer warm. We are no longer that welcoming spirit. We no longer sometimes understand what we have received in the forgiveness that we have been afforded through Jesus as we afford that to others. 
I hope this evening that as we transition into a time of communion, that we will not just hear about these things that we need to go and do, but what we will hear underneath of them is the the agent through which we are able to do them, which is Jesus and his spirit that's completely transforming us from the inside out, that we would be completely different people and that we would begin to see needs and we would meet them, not because we have to or we feel guilt and obligation to do that, because Jesus has so transformed us and we understand the love that he has for us we can then begin go and live that out. We cannot open up our homes and adopt kids and foster these people and even serve down the street. We cannot do that unless Jesus has completely transformed us. My hope this evening is that for this community, for us to move from that consumeristic, busy, this, this mentality where it's just about us, where we can begin to see us as advocates of justice and hope and life, that we would be fueled through that by Jesus and the way that he put himself out there for us so that we would have life and hope, so that we would be removed from servitude and slavery and bondage, so that we would experience life and grace and mercy, and we need to be agents of those things to the people in our lives as well. God, help us with that task. Do not grow weary, TRP. Do not grow weary in the work. This, I believe, is what we are called to do, to love God and to love others and to do it for the sake of Jesus.